Hey, ladies. Oh, must be some Southerners here. That's how Southerners answer. I'm not from the South. I think I would like to be. Things move very slowly there, and these days I like to move a little slower. Well, okay, sometimes. Not like on the freeway. (laughs) And I'm just going to leave that at that. Well, let me see what time we're starting so I know. 7.30, Deb? Need to be done? You know, I never know. I always time it. I think I know how long it is, and I'm either like 45 minutes or 15. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. I'm not one of these people I can't throw in like a lot of extra stories and stress or stretch or anything. So when I'm done, you know, I'm just done. We'll go. Well, would you turn in your Bibles with me tonight to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at the totality of it tonight, some of it here, some of it in your groups. And I'm really excited about this study. I love the way the format is that, you know, if you didn't get a chance to look at it this week, if you didn't read, if you didn't journal, well, you can do all that right now. As we're going through it tonight, as we read it, you can highlight, you can underline, you can make notes in your journal, which I, of course, forgot mine. And, you know, just kind of gather all that information right now. And then when we get together in the groups, thanks, that's ringing. Okay. Uh, Then when we turn to our groups, then you just have this wealth of stuff to share with the people at your table, to have them share with you. So it's a great format. I'm really excited about it. And I'm also really bad at homework, so this works well for me. Well, I hope you're in Ephesians 1. Let's start. We're going to read a little chunk of it now. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed himself. And Lord, again, I just want to come before you and ask that you would just open the eyes of our heart, open our understanding, give us ears to hear what you're saying to us individually, but also, Lord, corporately as a group of women who love you and want to follow you and want to honor you and want to bless you. So please have your way in this place, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Pastor Rob began a series on the book of Ephesians a while back, he pointed out this book was comprised of three different sections. Chapters 1 through 3 dealt with the believer's walk, and then chapters 4 through, or excuse me, no, chapters 1 through 3 dealt with the believer's wealth, all the things that have been given to the believers. Chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 9, deal with the believer's walk. And then from chapter 6, verse 10, through the end of the book, it deals with the believer's warfare. And the first three chapters really focus on the framework of our faith. They're about what God has done and who we are because of what he's done. And the last three chapters are really practical. They're full of instructions for us living the Christian life. They're about our response to what God has done and provided for us. And what we'll see in those chapters is the growth and the changes that should be happening in the life of every single believer. Now, some of us 
maybe most of us, once we realize this, we just kind of want to skip right to the last half of the book, don't we? It's like, I know this stuff, I'm saved, yay, but I need to know what to do. I want to know what to do. I want to know how to have a better marriage. I want to know how to deal with my kids and my boss. I want to know what to do about warfare. The problem with that is that if we don't have the plan, if we don't have the power or the purpose and we don't have the power of God, if we don't understand those things, we're bound to fail. We're just bound to fail. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to look at God's plan, God's purpose, and God's power. So first we're going to look at the plan for our salvation. In verses 4 and 5, we're told that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Or, as the New Living Translation puts it, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So his desire from the foundation of the world was to do this so that we could be reconciled to him. The fall had separated us from God in the garden, but God had a plan. He had says, it says that he had chosen us and he predestined us. Chosen and predestined. Well, those words are often a little bit like nitroglycerin in the back of a farm truck on a bumpy road. Sometimes those things are like an explosion waiting to happen. So let's talk about why that is. What do those words actually mean? Well, chosen or choice, that's obvious. It means to pick. It means something that's singled out. And predestined or predestinate in the Greek language, in this verse in particular, means beforehand and specifically determined beforehand. So something was chosen and determined beforehand. So does this mean that God singled out certain people and determined beforehand who would be saved? Well, if you follow this line of thought, and there are those who teach that in order for God to choose people, well, that would logically leave some people to be unchosen. Now, there are those in the Christian church who do teach this, that teach that God essentially has two lists, that some people are on the you're getting saved list, and that would leave other people on the sorry you're not getting saved list. And there's really not anything you can do to get from one to the other. God predetermined it. He predestined it. Now, that's a really, really oversimplified definition of their theology. And some groups or movements are really more extreme in this position than others. But then there are others like us here at Calvary Vista. We don't hold to that position. We don't think there's lists that nobody can get from one to another. And this has been a debate. This has just been a sometimes very ugly debate in the church for centuries. So I'm not going to solve it for you tonight. But I've been involved in some of these debates over the years with people who hold to this position, sometimes an extreme position. And it's really grieving. It's really ugly how we can bite and devour one another over something like this. In fact, when I got the teaching schedule and I saw that I was Ephesians 1, I went, I ain't doing that predestination thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm just going to skip to some part about like God's love or something. I'm not talking about that. I just, oh, I don't want to go there anymore. But here's why we can't skip this. Because it can be a source of contention sometimes in the church. But it is also a marvelous and glorious truth. And it's a mystery. 
It's a mystery. Now, we use the word mystery different than the Bible. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it just means something that isn't yet revealed. It's just, it's not like you're the detective on the crime show and you have to go, is this a clue? Is it not a clue? Is this a suspect? You have to figure it out. That's not what it means. It just means it's something that's veiled that hasn't yet been revealed. And while Ephesians 1 says that God did want to choose people and determine their eternal destiny, we know John's 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send a son to the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, that sounds to me like one list, the world, the whole world. But does that mean that the whole world can get, the whole world will get saved? No, it doesn't. That's called universalism, and that is a totally unbiblical teaching. And even though there are some very popular postmodern pastors who do teach this, that's not what the Word of God teaches us. Jesus is very clear. It is only those, whoever they may be, who believes in him that gets saved. Well, then the question is, are we chosen or do we choose? Listen, this is not an either-or. It's a both. It's not an either or, it's a both. This is a mystery, something not yet revealed. How this works, but it's both. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this doctrine was like a man standing on a street corner facing a building. And he's standing right at the corner of the building. And when he looks one direction, he can see one side of the building. He can see the sidewalk. And he can see everything that's going on on that side of the street. And when he looks the other direction, he can see the other side of the building. And he can see the sidewalk and everything that's going on there. But all he can ever see at any one time is one side or the other. He can only see two sides of the building. But God, who's high above, can see all four sides. He can see all the sidewalks and everything that's in the street. And ladies, that's how it is for us. While we're here on this earth, we're only ever going to see two sides of that building. We're only ever going to see two sides of that building. But one day, when we're up there with God, and I'm not sure we'll care so much when we're there, we'll see what he sees. We'll see all four sides of that building, the sidewalk, and everything that's in the street. It won't be a mystery to us anymore. But there's a greater truth in both these verses that we can and need to know. And this is it. God saves. God saves. I don't save. My systematic theology doesn't save. It's God that saves. And nothing in the word of God ever points to his refusal to save a repentant person. It just doesn't. It's not in God's character to refuse someone who would come to him knowing that they need to be saved and asking him to save them. He would never, ever refuse that. And Paul reminded his readers of what God had done and how he did it, that yes, he planned to save us, and he did it by grace through Jesus. And in writing to the Ephesians and the other churches that would read this, Paul's emphasizing something that's really important for us to grasp before we go much farther in our journey of this book. And this is what it is, that it's what God has done past tense, and this is what they have believed and experienced past tense. This is what grace has done for us. They're riches of his grace that we have today. Now, some Christians, and maybe some of you might even be like this or have had a season like this in your life, you know, they live like spiritual poor people. They just live like spiritual poor people. You know, you might know somebody who they trusted Christ, but you know, in their day-to-day reality, they live like people for whom the vault of God is just sealed shut. It's firmly locked. They struggle in their walk. Elise Fitzpatrick, in her book, 
because he loves me, made this observation, that if we fail to remember our justification, our or, yeah, our justification, our redemption, and our reconciliation, then we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle in our sanctification. And what that means that is that if we forget that we were redeemed, that we were purchased by, for God by the blood of Jesus, that we're now in a right relationship with Jesus, well, then we're just going to struggle. If we forget those things, we're going to struggle in our sanctification, the process of growing to be more like Jesus. We can't help but struggle if we're not laying hold of those truths. And she goes on to say, our problem is that we have a functional identity that flies in the face of gospel truth. Now, as believers, the gospel truth, the good news fact about our identity is that now our identity is in Christ. We're God's children, and we've been adopted into the family of God. You know, when the child Susie Jones is adopted by the Smith family, she's no longer identified as the parentless Susie Jones, but now she's Susie Smith. She's the child of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Her identity, her position in a family has been completely changed, and that's our identity, the gospel truth, the gospel fact. If we're born again, we are in the family of God. We have a new identity. So here's what she means by our functional identity, because our functional identity, according to Mrs. Fitzpatrick, is how you and I think about ourselves. It's the way we view and think about ourselves. Our functional identity is often sadly different from the gospel truth. You know, how sad Susie Smith's life would be if she continued to live like the orphan Susie Jones, you know, without a family, without the guarantee of a home, or the love and the care of a father forever. How sad that would be. And sometimes a lot of us, we live like this. We, we think like Susie Jones. We forget we're now Susie Smith. We're hanging on to what we were. We're hanging on to who we were. And we're hanging on to how we were before we were in Christ. They never appropriate, never lay hold of who we are now. And that's why these verses are such a great reminder to us of what God has done, past tense, and what we've been given, past tense, so that we can remember who we are, present tense. This is something to note. This is something to write on your mirror. This is to something for those days when you're lonely, when you feel unloved, when you forget what it's all about, when it's just too hard to try to walk with the Lord because of all the stuff that's going on, of all the things that are threatening to overwhelm you. You need to remember what God has done past tense, what God has given you past tense and who you are today, present tense. You know, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, every spiritual blessing refers to every spiritual enrichment that's needed for the spiritual life. And since these benefits have already been bestowed on believers, they should not ask for them, but rather appropriate them by faith, by believing. Now, similarly, Joshua was not to ask for the land since God had already promised it to him in Joshua 1, but he was to enter into the enjoyment of that provision. He was to enter into the enjoyment of that provision. The manner or sphere of this enrichment is in Christ. You know, and as believers, very often, we have this totally backwards. We have this totally backwards. We're trying to enter into the enjoyment of the world's provision. We're trying to have the manner or sphere of our enrichment be the world and the things of the world. 
You know, we're looking for things like earthly blessings and comfort and security and finances and, you know, relationships, stuff, hobbies to be the source of our enrichment and of our identity. And now there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves they are not bad. But for the believer, the, all of the, the blessings and the benefit of those things are just going to fall short. They're going to fall short if they haven't first appropriated the spiritual enrichment and the spiritual identity that God has given to us. Our identity, our position in him, our promise of heaven, these are the truths that should shape our lives and reveal our identity, who we really are, not the things of the world. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can't have a bank account, a marriage, a hobby, or ever buy anything. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that those things should not define who you are, and they shouldn't be your passion, and they shouldn't be your pursuit. But they very often are. I mean, let's be honest. You know, we often look to the label on our purses or our clothes, to the zip code we live in or the neighborhood we live in, to the make of car we drive, or for some of us, the motorcycle that we ride, to what our husbands do for a living or what we might do for a living. We look to those things to define us, to make a statement about us, to tell others who we are, what is our identity. You know, when we do that, when we do that, we really limit any true benefit or any true blessings that those things might have in our life. And you know what it reveals about us? It does not reveal our identity in Christ. We reveal ourselves to be shallow and to be more concerned with earthly things and an earthly identity than a spiritual one. And again, not that we can't have any of those things, not that we can't do any of those things, but they can't be the pursuit of our enrichment and they can't be the revelation of our identity. We were meant to live for so much more, to quote Switchfoot, but we often don't. We just don't. You know, the plan of God was to take our old identity and to exchange it for a new one. One that bears a label, because not all labels are bad, but this one says Christian. And you know what that word means. It means little Christ or Christ-like. It means to be like him. And that's who we are in him. He chose us. He delivered us and saved us. He forgave us. He filled us with his Holy Spirit. All of this, all of this by grace. Remember, he wanted to do this. We are his. We bear our label. We bear that label, his label of Christian. And the reason for this whole plan? Well, it was just his love for us. It gave him great pleasure, it said. He just loves us so much. His great love for us is the impetus behind this plan. It's the thing that puts all of this into motion. Never forget that, that it's his love that did all of this and brought it to fruition through Christ. Live in the truth of his love, what it accomplished on the cross, who it made you to be, and what is guaranteeing you now and forever because of who you are in Christ. This is my challenge to you to live in the truth of your identity in Christ. Make that your functional identity. Now we're going to talk about the purpose of our salvation. What's the purpose of our salvation? You know, there's really more than one answer to that question, and we see a couple of them. In this, in this chapter, and in verse 4, it tells us that we should be holy, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You know, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with change. I've been through a lot of changes in the last few years, and maybe some of you can relate to this. Some of them I chose, a whole lot of them I didn't. 
But I have a default to change, and it's pretty extreme. It's one or the other. You know, it's either, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Not broke, no change. It's good, and I'm good. Or it's that this needs to change. It needed to change 10 minutes ago. We need to get on with it. I'm rarely ambivalent about change. This whole, oh, it's change. Well, you know, let's just see what the Lord does. You can pray for me. That is way not me. That is not my natural bent. I have a sign in my bathroom. It's real pretty. It has a bird on it. It's antique It's real cute. And it says, change is good. Change is good. Some days I walk in and I see it and I go, yes, amen. Change is good. And other days I walk in and I see it and I roll my eyes and I make a noise like a pirate. But the truth is, change with God is always good. While God never changes, it is his intent that we do. It's his intent that we do. See, understand this. Thankfully, he is not saying, Marianne, today, you need to be perfect in all ways as I am. Be holy, be perfect like I am all day in all ways. That would just be setting me up for failure. That would just be a catastrophe. That's not what he's saying. When he says for us to be holy. The Bible is clear that sanctification is a process. We say this all the time. Salvation, instantaneous. But sanctification, it's the process of a lifetime. We won't be like him until we see him, the Apostle John tells us. The word holy at its core means set apart. We were over here. We weren't saved. We were part of the world. We got saved. We came over here. We're set apart from that. We're not like that anymore. We're set apart. We're We're just being set apart and dedicated to God. You know, it's been said that a saved life is a changed life. That a saved life is a changed life. And we're not in the world anymore, and we are set apart. So that difference from the world should be becoming more and more apparent the longer that we walk with the Lord. Set apart is what we already are in Christ. Being holy as he is holy is the goal. That's the fruition that we want to see, that when we see him, we'll be like him. It's part of our changed identity. Well, another purpose of our salvation is to bring him praise and glory. In verse 12, it says that um, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And in him you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And the word for praise there is a verb that means to speak well of. It means to speak well of. Verse 12 refers to those who we who were first we who first trusted and what that's referring to is the apostles it was the apostles that first trusted Jesus as their savior and they were jewish they were the first ones that believed and because they believed in him spoke well of him lived lives that were transformed because of him many more came to believe and ultimately that came to include gentiles which most of the ephesians were and a gentile is just really anybody who's not a jew now, this is a mystery, the, the mystery that Paul's referring to in verse 9. Because in the, here's a question. In the Old Testament, just to see if you're awake, who were the chosen people? You guys didn't have any coffee before you came in. <laughs> Thank you. I heard it. It is. It was the Jews. They were the chosen people. Being God's people was tied to their national identity. It was all kind of the same thing. And now God, at this time, had opened the door of salvation to everyone. 
It was no longer just the Jews. And this was a mystery. The Jews didn't know this. They were really baffled by this. They thought we're God's people and we do God's thing. And those people, they do their thing. But now God had opened the door of salvation to everyone. And it was being spread throughout the world because these Jews first, who first heard it and received it, spoke well of God and his son. And their lives spoke well of God. And many more were and continue to this day to be saved. And here's what this means for you and I. The purpose of our salvation was to give us a new identity in Christ. It was to set us apart, to be holy, to be growing in that holiness, and living lives that speak well of God and what he has done. As he's glorified, more and more people will see it, and more and more people will have the opportunity to have their identity changed and join our family, the household of faith. Well, then Paul switches gears here a little bit, and he prays specifically for his, for his readers. Let's take a look at it in verse 15. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glo- the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be the head of all things. He gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul prays a prayer for these Ephesians, the Ephesian believers, and really anybody who's going to read this. And this is such a great prayer. This is a great prayer to pray for yourself. It's a great prayer to pray for your kids. It's a great prayer to pray for those who first come to the Lord. And he's been talking in the past here about all the things that they already have in Christ, but now he's asking God to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that the eyes of their heart would be, or the eyes of their understanding, I was going to sing that song, the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. So why do we need to know these things? Well, because we need spiritual wisdom and revelation so that we can know him better. You know, we can't grow if we don't know. It's just the fact. We can't grow. A relationship flourishes and it grows and it deepens the more is revealed about the person who is in the, that we're in the relationship with. And if we don't press into that, if we don't have revelation that's being spiritually revealed about who God is, then we're not going to fall more and more in love with him. We're not going to learn to trust him more and more. We need this wisdom to be spiritual. We need this wisdom to be spiritual. We need continuing wisdom and revelation of who he is so we can know how to grow. And that's why these first chapters, again, are so foundational. They're so necessary before we get to the last three. This wisdom can't be of mankind. We need the spiritual wisdom and insight so that we can grow. And Paul prays something that he prays that we would know something else as well. In verse 19, it says, he prays, he prays that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. 
So how great is this power? Well, it raised Christ from the dead. I don't know anyone else that can do that. It seated him at the right hand of God above all other rulers and authority or powers or leaders or anything else, not just in this world, but in the next world to come and not just above, but far above, it says, far above all things. All things are under his feet. There's no greater power than God's and there really just aren't words that are adequate enough to describe the totality of this power. This is mind-blowing power. And you want to know something? This same power is toward you, and it's for you, and it's in you. It's the power we received at salvation that's going to help us in our sanctification. It saved us, and it's available to us to fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life and for his glory. And this is critical. This is critical. Unless we believe this, unless we receive this, unless we understand this, we're never really going to. When we get to the last three chapters of this book, we're not going to do it. We're not going to be able to do it. We need his help. We need his power. I can't change. You can't change without the power of God. You can't be holy. You can't really speak well of him. Testifying of the change in your life and the fullness of the change he wants to make without his power. And with the presence of the Holy Spirit flowing in and through your life, you can. You can. It's his power. It's what we have because of his plan in his purpose. We simply do not have the power in and of ourselves to do this. You can't know how desperately I want this in my own life. And I'm going to throw in a story because I must have talked fast. Surprise. This stuff is so foundational. I look around this room and I go, I know you chicks. Well, there's a few of you I don't know. But I know a lot of you chicks. I love you. <laughs> it's really fun to be here again. And <laughs> you know, I know you know this stuff. I know this isn't news. I know for, for most of you, a lot of you, you're not like, wow, I didn't know that. I'm, let me make a note. Wow, thanks, Marianne. I know you know. And I had an experience lately that really showed me the difference between what I know and what I can do with what I know. This past summer, speaking of changes, I had three things that I wanted to achieve this summer. And I did two of the three. One of them was that I was going to obtain my motorcycle license. So I enrolled in the motorcycle safety class that they have out at Cal State San Marcos. It's a three-day class, and can I just tell you, it's really gnarly. It's not as easy. It's just like a oh, little class, a little classroom, ride the bike a little bit. It's easy. Not easy. You spend the equivalent of one full day in the classroom where they throw a ton of information at you, and then... You spend, and that's about 10 hours, and then you spend about 10 hours out on the range riding, which, of course, I got to do when it was 105, and that was really fun. Pastor Sam took it at the same time I did. I think he prayed for me the whole time that I wouldn't, you know, crash particularly into him, and, uh, but it was gnarly. It was gnarly. Now, my husband has a motorcycle, and we figured out the mileage on his bike that I've put, I have put in about 40,000 miles on a motorcycle on the back of a motorcycle. I'm not driving it, but I'm on the back of it. And I am a backseat driver. I know what's going on all the time because when you're on a motorcycle, there's not a lot between you and the ground. So I pay attention to what's going on. I hang around with these biker guys. You know, they're always talking about this and that. You get a lot through osmosis. And then, so when I did the class, I was really surprised at how much of the, the class time was familiar to me. So then they give you this big test. And if you don't pass the test, you flunk. 
And you really want to pass the test because if you don't, you have to go to the DMV and drive in that tiny, tiny circle they have on your motorcycle, and I didn't want to do that. So they give us the test, and I'm nervous. And they give me the test. It's 50 questions. And I start reading it. I'm like, oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. I know that. I know that. The next thing you know, I'm done. Nobody else is done. And I'm going, I think I just missed all 50 questions. Nobody else is done. Let me take this again. So I go back and I'm going through, okay, one or two people get up. They turn theirs in. Now I'm looking. No, I think that's right. So I turn it in. So we sit around. I wait nervously for my results. And I get 100%. I get 100% on this test. Thank you. Thank you. It was the Lord. So I get 100% on this test. Well, the next day we go out five more hours on the range, 105 degrees, out there riding around. And we have another test. We have a test. Now, this is a driving test. It's not like the DMV test, but it's a little bit gnarly. And it's a really, really hot. And I had this moment when the instructor was yelling at me for the 50th time, turn your head, turn your head, turn your head, that I went, because apparently I'm not good at that, um, that I thought, do you know what? This is a perfect illustration of knowing a ton of stuff and not putting it into practice. I can totally pass that test. I can get 100% on that test. I've taken a couple tests online from the DMV. There were 50 questions. Got 100% on those. But when it came to putting my seat on the seat and my feet on the pegs, it's a whole other thing to translate what I know up here into what I'm doing down here. And I just thought, Lord, this is such a perfect illustration of the thousands of hours I've spent here and whether or not I'm really walking it out in my life. And I'm telling you, without his power, this can't happen. I can't know enough. All the 100% tests in the world are not going to sanctify me. It's yielding to him, being taught by him, walking it out with him by the power of his spirit that's going to really help me to pass. Now, fortunately, I got to pass into heaven. You know, I'm good there. But you know what? You want to live for his glory. You want to live a life that speaks well of him, don't you? I know I do. I desperately want to. And I know that you do too. You know, if we really want this, how much more do you think the Lord really wants this? How much more do you think the Lord wants this for us? Remember, it's his love that started all of this. This was his desire. This was his desire. It was what he wanted to do to have us be with him, to be growing in him and glorifying him. You know, I believe that this prayer of Paul's is something that God is just waiting to answer. I think he's up there going, pray the prayer. Come on, pray the prayer. He wants so much to answer this prayer in our lives right now. And in the heart that's willing and open to their new identity in Christ, he is just waiting to answer this prayer in your life. So now in closing, I'm going to pray the Marianne version of this prayer. So if you'd bow your head with me, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, ever since, ever since, I heard we would do this study, and I heard of these women's love for you. I have not stopped thanking you for them. And I pray for them, asking you, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give them the spiritual wisdom and insight so that they might grow in their knowledge of you. I pray their hearts would be flooded with light so that they can understand the confident hope that you have given to those you called, your holy people, who are your rich and glorious inheritance. And I also pray that they would understand the incredible greatness of your power for us 
for us who believe in you. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and it seated him at the place of honor at your right hand in the heavenly realms. And God, I pray that you would help us to live in these truths that we've seen in your word, to walk in the light of your love and all that you've done for us. Help us to walk in the power that you've made available to us. I know that this is your plan. I know that this is your purpose. I know that this is what you want for us. And Lord, we stand here tonight saying, have your way in us. Have your way in us, Lord. Teach us anew these foundational things. Make them rock solid in our life that we would not be moved. And Lord, help us to never, ever forget who we are today because of what you've done. Thank you so much, Lord, for what you've done. And we just commit all these things to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.